Thank you, Pastor Vanessa. Thank you, worship team. Appreciate you guys. Welcome both here and online. This is exciting. I mean, to me, this is exciting because it's the first Discover City Life as you are seated. It is the first Discover City Life we've had since this time a year ago. The first one we've had since the start of COVID, the first one we've had since we went online. And how many know there have been fresh faces, there have been new names that have come through over that period. So it's exciting. Matter of fact, even like the reach of online church, the geographic reach and influence, I don't think any of us could have predicted. Uh, matter of fact, Labas Vakaras, good evening to the, the, the few of you that tune in every week from Lithuania, right? Our services over there go through midnight. They have a midnight service every week as they worship with us online in Lithuania. But now that I probably just butchered Lithuanian, uh, let me pivot to some Greek, a word that I do know how to pronounce, which is doxa. And it's the name of a series we're in that we've started two weeks ago now. And it's about unlocking glorious living, right? For God's glory, Right, for God's glory. How can we unlock glorious living? And to do this, we're unpacking seven core Christian beliefs. And Pastor Fred has kicked this series off with two of them. God is one and the Bible is true. And from here, we're going to be going through mankind is helpless. The cross is enough. Jesus is life. The church is central and eternity is real. Well, those are powerful. Those are good. You should have amen to every single one of them. <laughs> but tonight, one that you maybe won't jump to amen, mankind is helpless. Some of you are like, oh, I've been coming here for years, but Discover City Life just sounded a lot more appealing. <laughs> give, it, give, it, give me a chance, right? Because again, we're not spending all our time each weekend teaching the apologetics, convincing you of these truths, right? Again, these are basic core beliefs as Christians. If you want to dig deeper, Absolutely. Reach out to Pastor Fred. Email him or myself, Fred or Justin, at citylifeva.com. We'll, we'll give you books, resources to dig deep into each one of these beliefs. But our desire in this series, Doxa, is to go deeper than mental assent or head knowledge. Our desire, our desire is that we would all ask the question, how is this belief instructing the way I live? How is this belief instructing my life when I walk out those doors? How is this belief instructing my life Monday through Friday? See, the root of the Greek word doxa is to think, to consider, to imagine, right? So the root of the word doxa speaks to belief, but the word is not about mere belief. Doxa is a Greek word for glory. It means splendor, grandeur, honor. It's used to talk about the revealed presence of God. So the beliefs that take root in our lives better get to producing fruit in the way you and I live that reveals God to the world around us, because that is what's going to bring God glory and is going to honor his name. 1 Corinthians 8.1, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Why does Paul give this juxtaposition? Is he saying that knowledge is bad? No. But I do think he's reminding us that knowledge can do one of two things. It can feed our love for people and our worship of God, or it can feed our pride. I think we're mostly familiar with the words like doctrine, orthodoxy, orthodox. They all come from the same root that doxa does. And those speak to the idea of an established set of beliefs. We should also recognize the word orthopraxy. It takes a step from right belief to right practice, right conduct. The way we live our lives, it's fitting that, that our discipleship model is called praxis because that's about how we walk this out. Because each one 
of these doctrines comes with duty. How do these beliefs bear fruit in the way that I live? How do these beliefs bear fruit in the way that I parent? How do these beliefs bear fruit in the way that I love my wife and love my neighbor and engage my culture and fight for justice? Each one of these beliefs should affect the way we live. And tonight we're going to ask the question we ask every week as a fill in the blank for each belief. So our question tonight is how does my belief that mankind is helpless inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? How is it affecting the way that I live so that I can be a better reflection of Jesus and point people to Jesus more effectively? But to start, I want to actually read from Matthew 21. It's a passage that will be read all over the world this weekend because this weekend is is Palm Sunday. Tomorrow is Palm Sunday as we enter into Passion Week. So all over the world, people will be reading from Matthew 21. And I want to read briefly verses 1 through 10. This is Jesus as he's approaching Jerusalem. And it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was prophesied through the prophet Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Let's pray. Lord God, this is our desire for Hampton Roads. This is our desire for seven, the seven cities we live in, this region, that the whole city would be stirred and people would ask, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that this church is worshiping, that these Christians are worshiping? I want some of that. Different translations say that they were trembling with excitement. God, this is what we desire for the people of our city, of our zip code, of our region. And God, we we know that that's only going to happen when we step from beliefs that we have in our head to beliefs that we walk out through our heart and our lives, God. So I pray that you would teach us tonight. Holy Spirit, instruct us in ways that we can live that give you glory and point people to Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said. Amen. So I read that passage in Matthew 21 to open because it's tied to a a passage in the Old Testament that we can turn to now. It's in 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15, whether you're swiping there on your phone or, or you're turning there with your Bible, while you do that, let me just tell you that one of my favorite parts of reading Scripture, studying Scripture, preaching God's word and reading from cover to cover annually is that you just, you see again and again these tethers that tie the Old Testament to the New Testament, these ties between the Old Testament and all these things that point to Jesus. Even the seemingly random narration, even the seemingly offhand accounts, within them are types and parallels and even prophetic proclamations that point to Jesus. And let me tell you why this is so encouraging to me and why it should encourage you tonight. Because sometimes, if I'm honest, my life feels like random narrations. 
Sometimes if I'm honest, it feels like the script of my life has gone completely off the rails. But like I see in scripture, Jesus is in all of it, right? God is with me, the Holy Spirit is in me, and even in those seasons that feel random, (laughs) mundane, or downright hard, if God is over it, then there's meaning and purpose in it, no matter what season you're in, just like when we read scripture. And so one tether from the Old Testament to New Testament with rich meaning that I wanna dig into tonight is, is in that Palm Sunday narration. And within it is this tie to a story in the Old Testament about a son of David in 2 Samuel 15. But in Luke's account of this same passage we read in Matthew, we read in Luke 19, 37, it says, when Jesus reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Now I got a confession For the longest time, right, the heading in my Bible talks about the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. So I've always thought that when these people were shouting these things, like, praise God for the son of David, I always thought that was in the streets of Jerusalem. But when you read this passage, you see that as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives overlooked Jerusalem. You had to come down that to enter Jerusalem. And it's while he's on his way down the Mount of Olives that they begin to shout these things. Why on earth is that significant? Well, the Mount of Olives is mentioned multiple times in the gospel, but it's mentioned by name only once in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Samuel 15, a story about a son of David. And it reads in verse 30 of 15 that David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning. And the people who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the hill. Why so glum, right? Why was David Morning. Well, his own son, Absalom, had incited a rebellion and laid claim to the throne. And rather than incite violence, rather than escalate the conflict with his own son, David abdicates the throne and he leaves Jerusalem. He, he, he trusts God, like, God, if it's your will, I know you'll bring me back to that throne I'm leaving. Matter of fact, he even sends the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, knowing that's where it belonged, showing that he valued being in right relationship with God more than being right in some conflict with somebody. That'll preach, and we'll get to that later. (laughs) But Absalom's story is ultimately one of rebellion. David's own son, who tried to take the throne through deceit, and he dies trying. In 2 Samuel 18, where we'll get to tonight, he's killed by men who were serving David. But even the son of David, Solomon, who rightfully takes the throne, his life went off the rails too. And from there, generation after generation of David's lineage would come to the throne, disobey God, and ultimately fail. Again and again, we seem to see that his lineage can't live up to this anointed rule. And a main theme throughout 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles is this question, who will finally suitably serve as the anointed king of Israel? It's in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. That we see another crucial text in Tether in the Bible where God promises David that one of his descendants would establish a reign that lasts forever. And this promise of a messianic figure from the, the line of David gets picked up and developed by the prophets. And they wrestle with this tension between that promise and the realization that each and every descendant of David fails to live up to it. Sinful disappointments to the point where they go off into exile. So it's no coincidence that the cry on Palm Sunday is, praise God for the son of David. It's one of seven times in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus is called the son of David, starting with 
chapter one, verse one, where he starts the lineage of Jesus. But then a half dozen times throughout his gospel account, people cry out to Jesus, calling him, hey, son of David. When the blind man calls out for healing, he he calls him son of David. When the beggar cries out for attention, he calls him son of David. And when the Canaanite woman cries out for Jesus to heal her daughter, she calls him son of David. It's like they're indirectly inquiring, are you finally the son of David that we've all been waiting for? The one that Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these prophecies prophesied about that would come back to Jerusalem, take up the throne and bring peace. Are you that son of David? See, Absalom, he's a microcosm of the descendants of David who would take up the throne and fail. He's also a microcosm and a foreshadowing of why the son of David, Jesus, would come and die on a cross for us. Because he's a microcosm of mankind in rebellion, needing reconciliation, and ultimately helpless to earn or achieve it. So how does this recognition of our sin and helplessness inspire me, right, and affect the way I live? Well, there are three profiles here in 2 Samuel, three considerations from this story that I want to tackle tonight. And let's start with the one at the heart of the rebellion, Absalom. Because Absalom shows us our need for confession. A verse we find early on in the story of Absalom reads that King David longed to be reunited with his son Absalom. See, the the narrative of Absalom and why it is significant and why he ends up dying is that there is more than just rebellion against his father. It's rebellion against the king. And I think sometimes we think of of sin and the concept of sin as like a, a my bad in a disagreement amongst friends or loved ones. But sin in its essence is rebellion against our creator and our king. It's not just a break in relationship with our heavenly father. It's rejection of him as king. In 2 Samuel 18, We see that that things have escalated. There's some back and forth in between those chapters, but things escalate to the point of battle. And Absalom's army, they're getting their tail kicked, and he he goes to flee, and he's riding a mule. This isn't a coincidence. A a mule or a donkey, riding that in this culture was was a, a symbol of kingship. It's why Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And it's why Absalom was riding one here in 2 Samuel 18. It was another claim of kingship. It was one that led to his death. Because in 2 Samuel 18, starting in verse 9, it says, Absalom happened to meet David's men, and he was riding his mule. And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going, hanging off a tree by his hair. Reputable hair. He was famous for his hair, thick hair. And when one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. They have a little back and forth. But then Joab takes three javelins in his hand, and it says he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. This gruesome death in the midst of battle. And where Joab finds Absalom is is suspended, hanging from a tree by, again, his famously thick hair. Is there a state more vulnerable and helpless than hanging from a tree by your hair while your enemy is coming to kill you. As one commentator put it, he is helplessly suspended between life and death, between the sentence of a rebel and the value of a son, between the severity of a king and the yearning of a father. Helplessly suspended, helpless. 
He's caught red-handed in rebellion and helplessly suspended. And we too are much in the same way stuck in our sin before God. And we too are helpless. But as we talk about mankind being helpless, let's talk about what helpless isn't when I say helpless tonight. What helpless isn't is, is a lack of agency. I think too often we can point to a sin nature as an excuse for disobedience, a way to explain away our bad habits or, or the scripts in our lives that God wants us to step away from. Helpless doesn't mean helpless to obey, right? Like we can just embrace some fatalistic attitude of what's going to happen is going to happen because I've got this sin nature. It's not about a lack of agency, but it is about the fact that no matter what we do in our agency, we're still ultimately going to fall short and it can't bring us healing. Bring us the life that's found in reconciled relationship with God. So when I say helpless, I'm not talking about a lack of agency. And when I say helpless, I'm also not talking about hopeless. Because when you read scripture, I want to turn to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And it's a key verse that I want to unpack alongside the story of Absalom. Because 1 John 1, 8 starts and he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... What's waiting is a divine spanking over the knee of an angry God. Oh, actually, it doesn't say that. It says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then he doubles down. He says, if we claim to not have sinned, we are calling God a liar. It's not something I want to do. But how does this truth how does this realization that I'm broken and I need a healer, that I'm sinful and I need a savior, how should this affect the way I live out there that brings God glory. And I think part of it, to start, sin has kind of become a, a, a word we don't like to talk about in the four walls of the church because it's been tethered to and tied to a sense of condemnation, right? And I think the enemy loves that because he would love for us to think that, no, you are separated from God and you can't get back. But when you read 1 John chapter 1, this, this recognition of sin in Scripture saying, yeah, I got sin in my life. It's not tied to condemnation. It's tied to conviction and, and repentance, an invitation to reconciliation. And we so often point to the fall of man without recognizing that to call it a fall, we fell from something. Right, And it's the relationship we were created to have with God Right in Genesis where God said, this is good. I've created these people in my image to have relationship with me. Right, That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Think about Absalom's birth. Right? David held this boy in his arms, this child carrying his image and his DNA, and he no doubt looked at him in love. See, our relationship with God God the Father is the most central relationship we will ever have. It is the relationship we were created for. Our relationships in life might look different. The ones we have with spouses and family, but we are all created for relationship with God. He creates us in his image. We're designed for relationship, but the problem is, like Absalom, we've messed up. We've messed that up through sin and rebellion. But here's the thing. If God feels distant, he hasn't moved. <laughs> you have. His love has not been shaken, right? And it's this steadfast love and kindness that the Apostle Paul says leads us to repentance. I've got this VHS. Everybody was mocking me. I had this VHS up here on my table because this is about as useless as a cassette tape or a compact disc. I don't have any way to play this. But uh, it's, it's of Rich Mullins, if you're online. 
So it's like a, a, a VHS about Rich Mullins. I can't tell you what's on it um, because I haven't seen it since I was a kid because I can't play it. It's a VHS. But uh, I, I've got this affinity for Rich Mullins. Maybe you say, is that your generation? Well, my parents, you know, they raised me in a Christian home. I might not have been following Christ faithfully as a teenager. It might have been going from Wu-Tang Clan to Rich Mullins in the evening with my parents and then Jay-Z and then Rich Mullins in the evening with my parents. But hey, man, those seeds, they bore fruit. And they also bore fruit of a, a love for Rich Mullins. I share all this because as I'm preparing this week, I look over and this sits on my shelf next to my commentaries. I think it was given to me by Anthony Hiltz. He was like, hey, look, thought of you, because he knows I got a love for Rich Mullins. And as I looked over this week, I'm studying for this sermon. I see that VHS because I was looking over at my commentaries. And it reminded me of this interview that he gave on the radio years and years ago. And there was an article about it and it was documented and uh, they were asking him, hey, when were you born again? And his first answer was like, when I, was, I guess when I was like two or three, I was in the nursery and I was singing, uh, uh, Christ, I need you come into my heart. Christ, I need you come into my heart. And, and the lady was like, no, no, that's too young. I'm talking about when were, you, when were you born again? And his next answer was, well, I guess when I was 10, I, I, I cussed in front of my mom and she put the fear of God in me and I realized I was a sinner in need of a savior. He got baptized that weekend. And she was like, no, 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 I want to know, when were you born again? To which Rich Mullins finally said, lady, which time? He goes on to explain that he used to get born again about once a year. Then at college, it turned into more of a quarterly thing. And finally, by the time he hit his 40s, he was getting born again about four to five times a day. Now it goes on, and Rich Mullins' point wasn't that we should walk without an assurance of God's love, or we should walk without an assurance of our salvation. But his point was, so often we think of confession, we think of repentance as a one-time thing. We did it at this altar one time, and, and then we're good, right? We're just waiting to get to heaven. But Jesus said, unless you remain in God, you're still helpless. He says, look, unless you remain in God, your life will bear no fruit, right? You can do nothing. And again, this is not some fatalistic or defeatist stance, but it's the heart of humility that keeps us coming back to God again and again. It's at the heart of the hymn that says, Jesus, I need you. Lord, I need you every hour I need you. One way that need is expressed is through confession. You know, confession is a word I think we've kind of let the Catholics run with and we've kind of let go of in our circles. When I think of confession, I just think of shows like Daredevil where they go into the Catholic church and they, they give a confession. Or, or I think in our culture, so often confession has kind of been synonymous with like a social media post where it's like confession. This is who I am. And it's vulnerability and it's authenticity. And that's a beautiful thing. That is a good thing. But it's a, this is me and this is who I am, and not a, this is me and this is where I'm broken and I need to change and I need to look more like Christ. See, confession as a word comes from two words, meaning together and to admit. It's coming together with God and or a brother or sister in Christ and admitting, I'm still broken, I still need healing, I still need God's grace. So confession as a simple, this is who I am, right? That might be easy. That might actually even score like likes and validation on social media. But a, a, a confession as this is who I am and this is where I need healing and to look more like Jesus, that, that can be hard. And look, the Bible doesn't give us a confession manual. <laughs> it gives us principles, but not a full primer. But it does show us that spiritual development and this act of confession, it'll go hand in hand. And I think it's because confession it's a powerful piece of our development because confession reminds us that while we develop and grow, we're still going to fight sin. Right? 
We are not slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we're not going to go undefeated. And those losses, if we're not careful, they can sow seeds of shame. They can sow seeds into our identity that God doesn't want there, which is why we still need to go to God for grace like the air we breathe. Like Rich Mullins, multiple times a day, again and again and again. And praise God that he graciously gives it. He's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, David himself gives a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, he said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. David shows us in Psalm 32 that to, to forsake confession and to stay away from confession is to sap your strength. He says to confess is to be blessed. And let me tell you, he knew this by experience. Think about when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan for the sin with Bathsheba, the, the murder of her husband, the cover-up, all those sins that just snowballed and piled up, and he's finally confronted by the prophet Nathan. And David responds to being confronted with six powerful words. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. <laughs> no defense, right? No excuse. Just six words, naked and vulnerable, right? Broken. Yet as David would learn and later write in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. See, David didn't despise Absalom. He longed for him. Imagine how David's heart would have overflowed if Absalom had come to him broken and contrite asking for forgiveness. If we had any doubt about David's heart towards Absalom, we merely have to look at what he tells his soldiers as they go out to defeat Absalom's army and put down his rebellion. What does he say to all his generals? It says everybody heard him. He made sure everybody heard him. He said, for my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. This is where we take a look at Joab, one of his commanders, because this speaks to our need for reconciliation. He says, for my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. Absalom had done nothing to merit being treated gently. And in a similar way, grace is often defined as the unmerited favor of God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It's not because of. It's as is. None of us climb some ladder leaning up against the cross to go up and get our forgiveness. Romans 5.8, we say it all the time. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because we learned to do better. It wasn't because we, we came to some knowledge of our sinfulness. No, he died while we were as is still sinners. We're saved by grace through faith. Again, not through some comeuppance, like we put some ladder up against the cross. No, we are all on level ground at the foot of the cross, sinners in need of a savior. So how does this help me lead a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? Quite simply, just humility. A humility in the, the way I see myself, in the way I see other people, and in the way I interact with other people, especially the ones that don't think like me, don't look like me, don't operate like me. How? <laughs> when I'm on my knees at the cross, worshiping the one who saved me, right, on my face before Jesus, I don't have the ability to look down on anybody, 
When I'm on my knees, on my face at the cross, worshiping Jesus, I don't have a perspective to look down on anybody. I don't have the time to look down on anybody when I'm worshiping Jesus. Why do I say this? Because, to put it plain, if you look down on anyone because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's self-righteousness, not the righteousness that's found in Christ alone through grace alone. And because of that, every ism from classism to sexism to racism, anything that puts one person above another, it runs counter to the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? Any sense of superiority or supremacy is tragically misplaced, especially a self-righteous scorn for Absaloms and prodigals. But again, Joab was acting with the concerns of a king in mind. Right? Joab saw a rebel hanging from this tree who had incited a violent rebellion against his king, so he kills him. That's kingdom preservation 101. Right? As David's commander, like he's, I'm doing my role as the king's commander. But David's cry to him as a father as he left was, deal gently with him. You know, we're about to celebrate Passion Week, the most significant week in history, <laughs> lived by the most significant person to wear flesh and blood, Jesus Christ. And what's unmistakably present in Passion Week is Jesus' nonviolence in the face of injustice and violence. Like when Peter takes out that sword to fight off these Roman soldiers and prevent his arrest, he's like, Peter, don't you know I could call down like a whole legion of angels and, and wipe out all these folks? I could wipe out the entire Roman Empire. But he didn't. He didn't. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was inspired by the agape love present in Jesus' nonviolence, and it sparked in him what would help spark a movement that was drenched in doxa. God's glory in seeking justice and unity, recognizing the imago Dei, the glorious image of God in, in every man, regardless of creed or color. And it was in his writing, The Power of Nonviolence, that he wrote, the nonviolent resistor does not seek to humiliate or defeat the opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. And he would go on to say, remember always that the nonviolent movement seeks justice and reconciliation not victory. And the question I ask myself as I reflect on Passion Week again is, am I out for justice and reconciliation with others or am I out to win some victory? David sought reconciliation. Joab sought a win by any means. You know, there was a, a Facebook video that made the rounds at a year or two ago now, it went viral. So it was on my feet again and again. And what the title was, was how to destroy an atheist in two minutes. <laughs> and the title turned me off enough to where I never even clicked on it <laughs> because it was how to destroy an atheist in two minutes. And I was, is this what it's come to? Is this my MO to destroy people that don't think like me? And I'm not disparaging apologetics or applying God's truth, right? But I am challenging the framework we think of it in. Because I think too many Christians engaging our culture are interested in winning arguments and owning people rather than winning them. And I'm not innocent. <laughs> too often like Joab out to end Absalom, I can think I'm acting on behalf of my king, right, God, when I buy into the us versus them, tit for tat, battle royale in our culture and on social media. But what was King David's cry? Be, deal gently with him. And as I'm studying this week, that calls to mind 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That sounds like apologetics. 
and do it in a way that destroys them. No, it says do it with gentleness and respect. Or 2 Timothy 2.25 where it says opponents must be put down. Oh, no, it actually says opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. God's desire is not for us to defeat or destroy. It is for repentance and reconciliation. And call me crazy, but Jesus says in John 3, 17, that he didn't come to condemn the world. And I don't think he needs me to take up something that he forgot to put on his to-do list. He said, I didn't come to condemn it, but to save it. But even with this realization, I still wrestle with it. This inclination in my flesh to drift into self-righteousness and look down on people who think differently than me, do life differently than me, right? That don't do life like me. It's so easy to look down from a high horse. And the question I have to ask as I engage with the culture and with people within it is, am I operating like Jesus or Joab? More concerned with winning than reconciliation. And when I look in the mirror and I remember the grace that I, I freely receive, it's easier to be gracious with people. See, why did David want Absalom treated gently? Because he didn't want him dead. He wanted to be reconciled to him. Killing Absalom wasn't a win for David. In fact, he mourned it bitterly as a father. In 2 Samuel 18, after his death, he would cry out, if only I had died instead of you. And it's with this we turn to David, the third character, and we see the heart of the father, and we see our need for substitution. See, uh, in my life as a father, recently I've had a lot of story bots. The show Storybots, and anybody who's a parent of a young one probably is familiar with Storybots, or as Roz likes to call it, Bot Bots, when we ask him what he wants to watch. Bot Bots. He did a little, <laughs> a little photo bomb in that Life Group video. <laughs> Cracked me up. But he doesn't just latch onto shows, Raj. Like, he doesn't just want to watch Bot Bots. Raj latches onto, like, individual episodes, sometimes, like, 10 minutes or five minutes within the episode. He wants you to rewind it again and again. Blue Planet 2. Episode one, combine all the movies I love and the number of times I've watched them, I've now watched that more than all of them because Raj wanted to watch that episode again and again and again. And there's an episode of Storybots that last year we watched again and again and again. And it was about our uh, immune systems. It was, I think it's called how, how Do You Catch a Cold? And it's about our immune systems. It's about what our white blood cells do to, to fight viruses. And, and Ross was watching this again and again and again during COVID season. I'm like, maybe he's trying to beat the virus. He's going to let us know somehow. Like, this is how it's going to be done. Because the show's all about viruses and how our white blood cells fight it. And maybe like the 200th time we watched it, maybe I was fresh off reading my Bible or, or something. But I was thinking, man, like this is a picture of, of atonement we carry in our bodies. Because when I cut myself and I've got an open sore and, and there, there's pus, there's a scab, that's a collection of dead white blood cells that fought the virus so I could live. Right in our own body, in our own blood, is a reminder of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Sin is like a sickness, a virus, an affliction. Our bodies may have been fearfully and wonderfully made, but because of sin, we need a healing that we are helpless to find in ourselves. And this is where the idea of substitution comes in. What we call in the church substitutionary atonement. What David lamented that it could have been me instead of you is exactly what God did for us. There are 
all kinds of analogies for what Jesus did at Easter used in Scripture that we'll probably hear this Easter, right? There's the analogy of the battlefield, that he defeated the power of sin and death for us. There's the analogy of the, the marketplace, that there was a ransom and a debt paid. There's the analogy of exile, that Jesus was banished and crucified so that we could be brought in. The analogy of the temple, that Jesus was the purifying sacrifice that lets us step into God's presence. There's the analogy of law and court where Jesus takes our punishment that we were due so that we could be righteous before God. Now, some streams of thought are more attracted to one analogy than the other, but all of them have something common through every one of the analogies, that Jesus is acting as our substitute to do what we were helpless to do for ourselves. If I could have the worship team come up, Jesus himself said in John 15, 13, no greater love has anyone than this, than to lay down their life for their friends. No greater love. The act of giving one's life to save another is the most compelling and stimulating storyline there is. That's why we see it again and again in art and literature and movies. Just think of our cinema. Like the 10-year arc of, of like 20-some Avengers movies was all leading up to the, the sacrificial death of one of the Avengers. In Terminator 2, T-800 dies. Boromir does it in Lord of the Rings. Spock in Star Trek 2. Clint Eastwood does it in dramatic fashion in Gran Torino. And the one that had me shook all up in my fields as a teenager, old Bruce Willis in the classic Armageddon, right? Dying so that the world could live. But we repeat it again and again in our art, in our literature, in our movies, because there is no greater love. There is no greater narrative than for you to lay down your life for your friends. That means there's no greater witness, no greater expression of God's doxa and his glory than what Jesus did for us. Because in our sin, we were helpless like Absalom, caught in red-handed rebellion, helplessly hanging like we're suspended in a tree. And some of us tonight may feel like Absalom did in that tree, like that commentary said, helplessly suspended between life and death, between the sentence of a rebel and the value of a child. Helpless, overwhelmingly so. Maybe you've had a rough day, rough week, rough year, rough life. God's love has not changed. God has not moved. And Jesus, the perfect son of David, died on a tree on the cross so we could be reconciled to our Father. And the door that Jesus holds open for us to step into life and relationship and communion with God, you can't shut it. You didn't open it. <laughs> we aren't responsible for that salvation. Jesus did it. <laughs> Jesus is. But it does demand in us a response. We are required a response. And there are two questions that again, we're gonna close every one of these weeks with just questions that we've been wrestling with that will be useful for you too. And one of them is again, one we already hit on. Am I operating like Joab, more consumed with winning than reconciliation? You know, that shows in my tone, <laughs> shows in how I talk to or talk about like those people, where I buy into the million lines in the sand of our culture of us versus them, our group versus that group, instead of Christ and his church, us for them, for reconciliation. And again, it's a lot easier to do this when I take a look in the mirror and I come again to worship at the cross and I ask this second question. Where do I need to come to God in confession and repentance to receive grace again? Where have I bought into guilt and shame instead of receiving grace and mercy? Where have I settled for distance instead of coming to the cross for communion? 
No doubt God the Father would echo. Man, I think about the, the father of the prodigal son and how he probably looked out to the horizon praying, man, please come home. David with a heart for Absalom looking out on the horizon like, man, please come back. That's his heart for us. Come. Not for retribution, for reconciliation, for communion, for relationship. But, you know, coming to him may look like a lot of things. And it may be for a lot of reasons for each of us tonight. But we're going to give you two opportunities to, to come, to do something physically to come. The first is we're going to worship. If you're going to stand, we're going to go back into worship. We're going to praise Jesus for what he did. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit, lay your finger on those areas that you want to change and transform. It might not even be a sin issue. It might just be a simple perspective of the way we see God our Father. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come the same way we were praying. We, we want to see miracles. And what greater miracle is there than what, you, what was dead, you made alive. What was exiled, you made a son and daughter again. The miracle of salvation. We pray that song. We want to see miracles, but may we never forget the miracle that we were helpless and you were our Savior. The miracle of Easter, that you beat the grave so that we could have life. Jesus, we praise you for it. We worship you for it. Again, if you could stand, we're going to worship. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to pray. After we worship, we're going to come back and we're going to pray. But let's praise Jesus tonight for everything he's done.